the Televerse podcast from Pop Optic TV. P-O-P-O-P-T-I-Q.com. Comedy, reality, drama, genre, and what's in between. Covering anything that's interesting. Yes, geek out on television, so much to see. We still peak TV kills us all. Current retro, upcoming TV talk every week. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse Pop Optics TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik, TV editor of popoptic.com, and I'm joined once again this week by my wonderful co editor, uh, managing editor for TV. I don't remember exactly what your title is, Depayan. Supreme Overlord of the TV section. Yeah, it's something like that. Because mostly all I just, just that I remember is that you're awesome. And thank you once again for joining me on the podcast to talk about uh, the week's TV. Oh, everyone, this is Depayan Singupta. I should also say more than your first name um, from Pop Optics. Yes. Not, not to be confused with the Depayan Francis from Pop Optic. Oh yeah, so, well it's a popular name, and yes. uh, we're just we're just there's all of the Depayans over at popoptic.com. Uh, what is going on this week in TV for you? What's the big news? I mean, the big thing for me is that almost all of the shows <laughs> took the week off because of American Thanksgiving. Yeah, that 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 sort of did dominate the whole thing, which is. Uh, you know, as uh, being being a Canadian, part of, part of me always thinks like, wait a minute, Thanksgiving's already over. What's happening right now? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, with all the Thanksgiving celebrations, uh, as far as as far as big news goes, for me, the big thing I'm anticipating at this point is the Flash slash Arrow slash Legends of uh, Legends of Tomorrow crossover, crossover, crossover. Um, is it three crossovers? Is it three crossovers if it's three shows or is it two crossovers i don't think it counts as three crossovers until the third show exists which it doesn't yet technically because it's starting in january so i would say right now it's a crossover just singular but uh when they do this again because i'm sure they will then it'll be a crossover crossover duly noted so yeah so so uh, you know i uh, that that crossover is uh is you know for me it's the most exciting thing that's coming up which is not to disparage the other shows and but uh, you know, gi- given how well they executed the crossover last season, and um, every- everything I've seen about the Legends of Tomorrow, as far as Vandal Savage and, and the uh, character team ups and everything goes, has been has been really exciting for me. So I'm so I'm excited to get a first real non trailer look at it next week. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that as well. Um, I'm also looking forward to what era will be when it's no longer a spinoff factory. Uh, so once uh, this you know, Legend of Tomorrow actually launches in January, it'll be nice to see the show hopefully break away from having to set up these characters, or feeling like it, it doesn't have to, but feeling like it needs to set up these other characters. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm anticipating that for the, the return of some of these characters I'm interested in to, to get a better look at Vandal Savage, who was so much fun to be introduced to in uh, in the Justice League animated series, which, you know, friend of the show, Noel Kirkpatrick, had me watch. And uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to that this week, as well as, you know, as we talk, The Walking Dead has mid-season finale this week a lot of shows are wrapping up the mid-season so uh, that normally would lead to a more relaxed tv viewing schedule for us but of course other shows then will be starting up oh so soon we know what january is going to bring us to pie in and it's not going to be pretty no it is not it's going to be exciting but it's not going to be pretty yeah so that is sort of dominating uh, at least for me as well as you know holiday stuff I, w- I took some students to the nutcracker today it was wonderful live orchestra there's nothing like seeing live uh performance and so that was that you know that kind of stuff is also a big part of the season so very excited to be getting into a theoretically once i've caught up with like the 10 shows i'm behind on <laughs> lighter uh tv load for at least the next few weeks 
Well, but then as you catch up on those shows, there'll be new shows premiering because some shows still premiere in December. Peak TV. I'm trying to lie to myself here. Let me have that delusion. Speaking of, though, we will be doing we will be previewing a couple shows that are starting up soon here uh, in this week in TV, and then of course at the DVD shelf this week. It's yet another season spotlight instead of a DVD shelf. But when we're in the season or, or the time of of a uh, peak TV. Some of these shows fall through the cracks, so I'm, I'm actually very excited that we've been able to do these uh, season spotlights at the, at the end of the year here. And one of the shows we barely talked about earlier in the year was Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, just because there was so much other TV happening at the time. So we are going to be doing a season spotlight on season one of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt at the end of the podcast, uh, t- going back and kind of taking a look at that season, um, which does feel like in some places getting a little more forgotten as we head into the end of your listening. So I'm excited for that. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I'm with you in that, uh, you know, much much like in the movie season, um, the shows that get released earlier in the year seem to get forgotten as the end of the year comes around. And then uh, they premiere again at, at early next year and everyone says, wait a minute, why weren't they on the best of year list? So I'm glad we're going back and looking at Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt because uh, white dudes hold the records for creepy crimes, but females are strong as hell. They alive, damn it! Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's going to be fun. So now, with no further ado, let's head into our week in TV. So taking us out, uh, for, there's only a few more weeks of this until uh, this show has its uh, winter finale. But taking us out uh, into our week in comedy, please enjoy the song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. We'll be right back. He's discerning. He's refined, eats French cheeses, drinks French wine. He travels all the time, and at the airport cuts the line. And when he checks his leather luggage, no extra charges are incurred. Cause he's elite, he's silver elite, executive silver elite. His studies is preferred. stays the kind with grand breakfast buffets and a chef who can make omelets a variety of ways and they don't stick him in some regular room no that would be absurd he gets a that was his status is preferred from this week's episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I'm going to miss having these songs to lead into the week in comedy. Um, this week in comedy, we're talking about, uh, well, first I'll preview Transparent Season 2, uh, talking about the premiere of the Great Holiday Bake Off on ABC. Uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about the Drunk History finale space before we talk Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I'm so happy that Josh is so happy. Uh, and then Jane the Virgin, Chapter 29. Uh, first up, though, I wanted to preview Transparency Season 2 really quick because, of course, that's dropping this week on Amazon on Friday. And I've only seen the first few of this one, but uh, it, it's really it has some very interesting things going on. I'm not as immediate. And, of course, I'm, this is my own baggage I'm bringing into watching Transparent, but as I am doing and, and managing the listening that needs to happen, right now I need to finalize my lists of the best uh, TV of the year for various reasons. And uh, I, I can't really help but think about Transparent as I watch it in relation to the rest of the year's TV and how it's going to slot in because this is such a late addition to, you know, the to the potential lists that and, and because season one was so high on my list last year. 
that I think I'm, I'm probably overthinking and, and bringing too much baggage to the experience. But I did really like the episodes that I've seen so far. I, and there's, you know, any fans of this show from last year, I think will really enjoyed this this season. There's some really interesting stuff that it's doing. Um, I want to say structurally or um, just this this one idea. I don't want to spoil it that that kind of comes out of nowhere in the first uh, or second episode. And it's really interesting. And I can't wait to see how or when or if it ties back in, um, which I know is not very help- helpful listeners. Uh, but there's some, you know, it's nice that in its second season, Transparent is doing some of the same things and then also introducing some very new ideas and also some particularly naughty relationship and uh, interpersonal situations. I really like what we get from these first, uh, this first handful of episodes. I can't wait to watch the rest of the season and I'm sure there will be more thoughts on it next week, but, um, particularly what they're doing with Mora and, uh, you know, with her relationship with her ex-wife is interesting and, uh, fertile ground for the show to explore what they have going on with a couple of, of new relationships or new takes on, previous relationships is very effective and uh just the, some of the point of view work you know the the camera work and the shot um, like the blocking and the the cinematography and everything was really great in season one it continues to be very evocative in season two and uh i'm sure it will be getting plenty of coverage and lots of uh talk about uh, this season as it as we approach its premiere and uh people get a chance to start watching it. So I'm very excited to watch the rest of Transparent Season 2. Are you excited for this upcoming season, Defiant? I am, yes. Uh, I haven't caught up on the first season yet, but I heard only good things. And, uh, you know, the, the performers are all performers I admire from other shows. And so uh, I do intend to, before the end of the year, catch up on both the first season and the second season. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell me your plans. So <laughs> fingers crossed, I actually get to do it. There are no plans in Peak TV. <laughs> the only plan is to try to stay ahead of Peak TV. <laughs> also this week uh, over at ABC, I got a chance to see this ahead, but not to record about it ahead. Uh, ABC has premiered the holiday baking show, the great holiday baking show, which is the you know spinoff of the Great British Bake Off. Apparently, Pillsbo- uh, Pillsbury has patented the rights to or trademarked the rights to Bake Off in the U.S., which is why it has a different title here, which I think is hilarious. What an what an odd thing to patent. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, this is hosted by Nia Vardalos and Ian Gomez, who I both enjoy. And parts of it by the end of the first episode, I was on board, but it really took a while. It feels very kind of weird and wrong because the. The, the the two hosts are not really capturing that that Mel and Sue vibe. And it feels like they're not trying to be themselves, but they're trying to be this sort of other version of a host that the show thinks it needs. Like, let Ian Gomez be silly and weird. I mean, come on. We we loved him on Cougar Town. We loved him on so many different things. He can be super funny, but they, they, they just don't have the tone right with the hosting in the first episode. By the end of the episode, it's a little more fun. It feels a little less strained. Mary Berry's great. I really don't care about Johnny Gazzini. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily on board there, but I like the different, uh, uh, bakers that they've brought together and I probably will watch this just out of an affinity for the original. Um, again, like I said, by the end of the first episode, I was, I was more into the groove of things. So hopefully they will work out their tonal quirks and, and get a better sense of, of, the, of trying to recapture the magic of that original show. Do you have any interest in the great holiday bake off or sorry, baking show? Yes, bake off. Watch out, Pillsbury will sue you. <laughs> uh, I I don't have any interest per se, but uh, then again, I 
don't have any disinterest per se either. I don't have any repulsion towards it. Uh, I've heard really good things about the Great British Bake Off, and uh, it, it's a show I've been I've been meaning to um, take a look at. Although, admittedly, it is very low on my priority scale. Uh, but if if I'm I'm perfectly willing to give the show a chance if it if it actually does turn out to be, uh, you know, worth the watch. Uh, baking, uh, you know, as as I understand, the the Great British Bake Off doesn't fall into many of the. Um, Many of the reality show cliche traps of the um, overly dramatized backstages and all those kind of things. So, uh, no. So, uh, I, I'm definitely rooting for the show to succeed, uh, even if even if I'm not amongst its viewers just as of yet. Well, and I would also give uh, notice to the people out there listening. Apparently, The Great British Bake Off Season 1 is now available to stream online under the American title, Great British Baking Show, or Great... Um, yeah, great British baking show. So uh, I would go. I would go with that before you watch this, or if you watch this and it doesn't quite work for you, I would. I would highly, highly recommend to check out the original because it just it's really great. I love it. Um, but yeah, for those who are fans of the original, maybe check this out. Let us know. You know, let us know what you think. But for now, let's move on to our our next show, which of course I'll go from a premiere to a finale. This week, Drunk History had its season finale. Space. I, I don't really have much to say about this specific episode, other than. Nathan Fillion as uh, Von Braun, uh, Werner, Werner Von Braun, is just hilarious, particularly young, like baby Werner Von Braun was delightful. I really like the way that the narrator handles that character, being like, he used this great leader in robotics, also a Nazi, and I have, I'm conflicted. I just really appreciate the how approachable his response to all of that was, and that, uh, you know, he just, you know, and of course, I'm sure the copious amounts of alcohol don't hurt with this but the way that he just embraces the complications of it and uh yeah it feels very relatable i i'm sure that you've had that conversation before define where you're talking about a, an important historical figure or a leader in a particular field but you know you know that they were a terrible person or they uh you know beat their wife or husband or they uh were you know anti-semitic or you know this is the thing that comes up constantly with separating work uh from the personal or for example art from the personal and where do you start supporting the person versus appreciating their accomplishments and uh, I, I really enjoyed the drunk history take on that. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I, I have had way more, you know, a ton of those conversations. And uh, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's always difficult to go through those things. And the fact that you're saying drunk history is actually tackled, that makes me uh, even more so want to actually check out drunk history, um, knowing the cabal of talented comedians that are behind it. I don't know why I haven't before, but uh, jump in in the finale. That sounds... That sounds like a good way to start. Oh, well, I mean, it's not like it's a serialized show, you know? It's these, you know, eight-minute segments, uh, three per episode, completely standalone. So, yeah, it's an easy way or an easy place to jump in, and uh, certainly it was a fun finale. Not necessarily their best of the season, but a really strong entry, and uh, I've really enjoyed keeping up with Drunk History this season and, like, actively following it in a way that I haven't before. So, Drunk History, uh, tip of the cap to you. Really enjoyed this season. But let's move on swiftly to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I'm so happy that Josh is so happy! And uh, the aside from even just the songs here, the appearance of Dr. Phil um, was really interesting, and I, I liked the way that this episode it just took a big dive in with mental health and uh, finally got back to Rebecca dumping her pills and these other issues uh, that have been sort of in the background and lingering through the season. What did you think of this episode? 
I really enjoyed it, not only in the sense of how it showed um, Rebecca has got some issues that she needs to work through, but also how uh, Paula herself has got, uh, you know, some some clear issues that she's um, increasingly trying to avoid by ingratiating herself in uh, Rebecca's life and, uh, you know, just about almost having an affair, all for the sake of the company, um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, but... Uh, no, I, I, I actually really enjoyed this episode, and especially coming on the heels of last week's episode. Uh, the show is on a real upswing uh, in my mind. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the basic premise of, of uh, Rebecca moving to West Covina to sort of be with Josh is uh, I'm, I'm really admiring how the show is juggling uh, both that, but also using that to delve into um, the character of, of both Josh and Rebecca. Um, and this week we get to see exactly how um, all of Josh's friends feel about um, his relationship with Valencia and the fact that they're using all this time to, uh, you know, uh, to expand on, to expand on these, all these characters and give them uh, further shadings is I think, you know, it's, it's a real strength of the show. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, specifically about Paula in this episode, the way that they, you know, cause we're, it's a heightened show. We're willing to go with, and she just happens to have a coworker who is eerily obsessed with uh, helping her win over Josh. So having that be, uh, revealing that to be very much a sublimation of her own romantic uh, unfulfilledness uh, or just her lack of connection in her, her marriage, I think makes so much sense. I love that they saved it for this deep into the season, um, you know, to show, yes, maybe we're just having fun with this, but also we did take the time to kind of thread these ideas through the earlier episodes, the season of her husband's never around and, and these other, you know, she's very un- unsatisfied in her life, let alone her romantic life, but her, most of her life. Um, I thought it was very effective and uh, also just lets them move forward in a, you know, with the, with that character and with that relationship with Rachel in an increasingly personal way. I love that Rachel isn't able to snap out of anything for herself, but she's instantly able to to rush to Paula's aid and maybe that's not realistic maybe that is not an accurate depiction of of depression or of um you know whatever list of things that Rachel is dealing with but narratively it's incredibly satisfying yeah no absolutely I I think um you know I I think relatively speaking it kind it's it's in keeping with character I don't know if it's realistic or not but um Rebecca is very uh focused on helping others uh, we we have seen that in other episodes as well um with Josh yes but uh, with other with uh you know even with Greg and with uh, with other people so I think it's in keeping with character with her I mean this is after all the same person who um literally took Josh by the hand and marched him into the um the Hawaiian electronics place, whose name I forget now, um, and gave a big speech to make sure he got the job, uh, you know, no matter how she felt. So I think her just, uh, you know, being able to uh, have a project, I think maybe in the form of stopping Paula from um, committing adultery, uh, helping her, helping her snap out of her own problems and have something else to focus on in that sense um, does seem to be in line with her character um, as, as far as how we've seen it so far on the show. Any thoughts on the songs this week? Um, I you know what I I really enjoyed Paula's uh, you know Paula's song the one that uh, you played at the be- you, the one that you played during the show. Uh, I'm I've been very impressed by the quality of the singers. Uh, you know not just not just Rachel Bloom herself but um, everyone. And last week with um, 
what'll it be? Uh, just, you know, just floored me. And this week, Paula's skill on, uh, you know, in uh, preferred. Uh, so, so you know, I've, I've really enjoyed the sh- songs. And this week, it was no different. Um, I, I always feel like after watching the episode, I'd, I want to go back and rewind and just watch the songs themselves. <laughs> um, works here as well. Yeah, the sexy French depression, uh, delightful <laughs> as a fan of, I, I haven't seen as many films of that genre as I have some of the other genres they've, they've had fun with, but it's, you know, it's delightful. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Even if that's not a song I'm going to be remembering or singing, you know, the melody of or anything, but just the visual of the text up on the screen and the translation and everything is, is uh, a lot of fun. So yeah, the, the, the song melodically and, uh, harmonically that, sticks with me this week is definitely preferred but I, I still like that they're playing with different genres and again I keep say, harping on this every week but if they're not going to be a musical and they're going to be a show that has songs this is a fun way to do it so maybe I would prefer it was a musical but again I'll, I'll, I'll gladly take this because at least the songs are interesting and uh, creative and unique uh, for the most part. Uh, not so much for me last week, but this week, definitely. So the, the last thing I have about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, though, I thought Rebecca Bunch and I were, you know, fingers crossed, you know, right there together. And then she had to go and be all anti-Oxford comma. What up? Rebecca, that's not Oxfordama is the best. Well, that might have not might not have been her talking. That might have been the pill talking, the one that she picked Clearly. up off the bathroom floor and and took. Because Oxfordamas are the best. Uh, do you have any final it's, thoughts? It's gonna mess with your brain. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, I, I think uh, you know, for for me with Paula, um, both last uh, both last week and this week, I think it's uh, you know, I'm I'm really excited about how they're presenting Paula as this sort of uh, you know the show's take on. Uh, well, well, basically a fangirl, uh, fangirl for any kind of genre show or anything of that sort. Last week they made it uh, almost quite literal with uh, with Paula watching Rebecca's happenings on a screen and yelling, "Not Greg, Josh! Not Greg, Josh!" Um, but even this week with her talking about Twilight and how it's the best romantic story since Shakespeare, in love. Uh, I I really enjoy how, uh, you know, I really enjoy how they're setting up Paula as uh, quite literally a fangirl. But then with the shadings they give her this week, it's like, oh, we're, we're, you know, uh, we're not mocking fangirls in general. It's sort of an examination of of the kind of attitudes that lead someone, uh, you know, into fangirling territory. Um, Which, which to me, I think um, is a very, it's a very relevant idea. I mean, it may not be a a quote-unquote important idea to tackle in TV show, but I think it's a very um, relevant idea to tackle in TV show that, uh, you know, it, it's probably Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, as far as I'm aware, is the only one um, actually examining, uh, you know, fangirl mentality and the kind of things that, uh, the kind of things that inspire it and result from it. Um, so, you know, kudos to the show for doing that with Paula. And of course, the the actress, whose name I do not know, um, is pulling it off wonderfully. That's Donalyn Champlin, and she's great here, absolutely. As well, and that's a really that's a really salient point as well. Uh, the examination, but like you say, respect for or appreciation of, uh, of of fan fandom um, and fangirling and everything is, I think, really interesting. And we should also give some credit to uh, Cedric Garbro, who's great as Calvin as well. Uh, been a fan of his for a long time. Uh, even like back to like Reno Nine One and everything. So glad to see him pop up here, and I, hopefully he will be recurring for a while. Yeah, well, he is a Clyde of Whitefeather, so um, 
you know, let's fingers crossed he comes back. Easy to bring him back. Well, let's move on to our last show of this week in comedy. That's right. This is what happens when it's American Thanksgiving. There are very few shows to talk about, but we'll have plenty to say, I'm sure, about Jane the Virgin, Chapter 29. Now, you uh, caught up on a bunch of this, as I understand. Uh, How are you feeling about this episode, but also the lead up to it? Uh, well, yes, I actually caught up on on the last month's worth of Jane the Virgin, um, including this week's uh, episode. And uh, you know, for me, the one the the first thing I noticed just while while watching it is that I'd forgotten how how quickly these episodes move. Like, uh, you know, the the episodes. I don't know if it's because I'm invested in the characters or because uh, you know the plotting is so quick. But half the episode can pass by before I even realize that. Well, half the episode's gone by, uh, and you know, watching all four of them together like that, it's. Uh, it impressed me again just how well these things move. Uh, I'd be curious to know. I, I'm completely unfamiliar with the world of telenovelas, so I'd be curious to know if that's um, an inspiration, that a page they take out of the telenovela playbook to just um, keep people engrossed uh, right up until uh, the final credits roll and so they don't realize how much time has gone by or if it's just uh, you know, credit to the writers. Or I guess it can be two things. Uh, yeah, well, that being said, like, I mean, th- this episode, I, I really enjoyed it, especially um, the idea of Baller Mateo and Charitable Mateo. And um, this, this uh, you know, this kind of conflict that Jane has about um, whether or not Mateo should have a lot of money or not have a lot of money is, I think, a very, a very uh, you know, prescient idea to have, especially for someone like Jane who has had to, as we have seen through the course of the show, she has had to scratch and claw for everything. Even when it comes down to just her grad school now, she has to keep proving that she has, she wants to be there and that um, she has the skill to be there. Um, so for her to have that kind of ideas about Mateo is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's very in keeping with character, but at the same time, the show didn't um, dismiss Raphael's idea as well, that um, he can be rich and still be a good person. Uh, uh, because you know Raphael, the the show didn't cast either Raphael or Jane as wrong, and the fact that they had that kind of conversation um, really impressed me. And I'm also enjoying Petra's arc this season, as personified in this episode as well. That um, fine, uh, she's had all this time where she's been under the influence of Milos and her mother and a whole group of other people, and she's always thought that um, you know she has to do evil to be able to actually get what she wants. But at this point, suddenly now. Uh, you know, Jane's willing to be her friend, help her out, um, and Raphael's offering her words of encouragement to help out with, uh, you know, with the twins now that she's uh, going to have. Um, she's feeling for the first time that she doesn't need to manipulate people to get to where she wants, but at the same time, she can't escape the clutches of her old life. And I'm actually really excited to see how she deals with these things, because she is aware of, of her mother and uh, how evil her mother is. And she's also got Milosh on the other side, even though Milosh is in prison. Um, but if, you know, it's going to take a lot for her to actually open up to um, Jane and Raphael and say that I need help. Can you help me with these things? Uh, if she can do that, then it's a big step for her. That's probably going to be the defining aspect as to, uh, you know, how Petra goes. If she backslides into her old ways or if she truly takes a step forward. Yeah. I think they really have, um, I, I've, they've really improved Petra with these last few episodes, and uh, I'm really intrigued with what's going to happen next. When and the the episode that you're you've been referencing actually is last week's episode. Um, so this week, when we see her dealing with the the body that her mother is standing over <laughs> at the end of last week's episode, um, and we see her, you know, 
push away Jane to try to smooth over a body moving situation. It, it is really effective. Like it shouldn't be effective anymore because they've done that push and pull with Jane and Petra so many times, but I, I am invested again. So props to the, uh, to the writers over there because they continue and also to the performers, I should say, because they continue to make that interesting and make that successful. And I'm so much more invested in the friendships on the show and the family connections than I am the romantic ones. It's just not even funny. So if they can bring Petra into the family, uh, you know, the, the adoptive family, as it were, I would really be on board for that. I don't know if they can, cause they do keep, they do like to connect her to these increasingly ridiculous storylines. So first taking, uh, taking the henchman hostage back in season one and that escalating to hiding a dead body and everything here in season two. Um, so I don't know if they're interested in doing that or willing to do that to make her a more, um, normal kind of character. But I do think they really sell that, um, potential friendship incredibly well. Uh, the show does when when they let those two come together. So I'm hoping for more forward progress on on that. And um, yeah, the, you know, Raphael makes that great point about just because Mateo may have money doesn't mean that he can't be a good person. I'm a good person. And then we get that undercut this week with something I won't mention because I, I I get the censored episode behind then. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm I'm caught he's, up. I just, oh, he's uh, had the episodes switched. Yeah, switched up. Yeah, that that's what happens when you marathon everything. You get the storyline switched up. Yes. Okay. Well, then, what did you think about the reveal of Raphael did actually turn Michael in, and uh, all that that drama, her like breaking up with Michael because Michael was causing her to doubt her baby daddy, who it turns out she should have doubted. Like, what do you think about all that? Well, I think. I think both sides are right. and uh, Well, not both sides are right, but in the sense that um, Jane has justifiable reason to suspect both of them at this point. Um, Raphael most definitely crossed a line in having someone um, literally lie to the police so that he can get Michael out of the picture. But at the same time, when Michael attacked Raphael, he did attack him with no regard for the fact that Matteo was uh, literally right there. Um, so I, I think at the, at this point, um, the people who are most invested in Mateo's well-being do seem to be um, sort of Jane and Jane and Jomara and um, Alba. Um, and at this point, I think Jane could stand to maybe take a break from both men um, because both of them seem to be, uh, you know, both of them seem to be taking all the wrong steps in a way to actually get closer to Jane or closer to Mateo. Um, I understand that Raphael is afraid of losing his family, but at the same time, I don't support him um, actually putting in that kind of thing to get Michael out of the picture, um, no matter how well it did turn out for Michael to actually, uh, you know, go after Sin Rostro or um, whatever did end up. No no matter what consequences came out of that, the um, the fact that he did that at all is is not um, not not acceptable in my eyes. What about you? No, I agree. And uh, it's going to be tricky I keep saying that, and the show keeps showing, uh, demonstrating why it's so great. It's going to be tricky to come back from that in a way that we're comfortable with. Because, uh, I mean, they've done that with Raphael several times where he's done shady stuff that we're not okay with. But then he does really sweet stuff, so we forgive him. Uh, and you can only do that so many times before the sweet stuff doesn't seem sweet anymore. So um, I think it was a good reveal. I think it was good to to show that Jane was right to trust her instincts. And, um, I, I, I think it also doesn't change, like you say, it doesn't change anything about Michael getting into a physical altercation, uh, with, with Raphael. Like that doesn't 
change that either. So I do think that um, it complicates the situation, um, muddies the water a bit, keeps everything interesting without fully absolving anyone. And I think that's that's just smart writing. And speaking of smart writing, the last thing I wanted to mention is the grad school storylines. I'm liking the whole uh, wannabe Truman Capote thing that they have going on. But also as someone who has gotten uh, notes from people and then tried to like look back over your writing and how can I make this, you know, more insightful? How can I make, just make it sparkle? You know, like I thought that that writing sequence with Jane was fantastic. Yeah. And I actually, actually also did enjoy the fact that they cycled around to the professor who um, seemed like he had a grudge against Jane, even though um, I wasn't very fond of how he was characterized in the lead up to this week's episode, um, because he really should be a little more understanding of the fact that she is a new mother and, uh, if if he says that her priority should be the class or the baby, um, which it did seem like he was heavily implying in last week's episode, uh, if if at that point she says it's the baby and she walks out of the class, there is really there is really no way anyone can blame her. Um, but this week I did enjoy the fact that Jane, um, you know, Jane somewhat came around on him. Not that not the fact that he is, uh, you know, not the fact that his personality is not abrasive, but uh, that doesn't negate the fact that his advice is you know, more helpful to her than, uh, you know, than uh, the relation to Michael Bolton, uh, Dr. Lorraine <laughs> Bolton. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did enjoy that aspect because sometimes, sometimes personality clashes have nothing to do with actual, uh, you know, academic skills and how well people work together. And I'm excited to see how um, they sort of develop, develop that whole thing. Uh, let me ask you this though. Uh, do you prefer Michael? Uh, and I, I'm guessing I know that I, I'm guessing where your answer is going to lead to this based on the fact that you said you prefer the pre- friendships over the um, romantic relationships. But um, are you finding Michael more interesting now that he's obsessed with Sin Rostra as opposed to obsessed with Jane? Um, no, but uh, I'm not very interested in Sin Rostro at all. I'm like negative interested in Sin Rostro. Um But they need something to do with Michael. And uh, I don't know how they can keep him on the show without having him be trying to win over Jane. So they need to do something. I don't really need it to be this. Uh, I'm just not engaged in the cop part of the show very much outside of liking the characters. And um, I hope that they're able to come up with something a bit more interesting. Like Mutter and Louisa somehow being super involved in all this, despite her not knowing. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, well, I mean... I like them giving Louisa something else to do besides be wacky as the situation requires. So that's good. But um, yeah, I, like all of these complicated um, plots within plots and schemes and all secretly alive and everything is not of interest to me. So um, that sort of all falls into the, oh, yeah, there are other people besides the Villanuevas on this show. And I kind of forget that sometimes. Yeah, no, that's 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 true. Um uh, you know, if, if the show is just 44 hours of, of no, 44 hours. Yeah, well, 44 hours, too, of, of watching just uh, the Villanueva women and Mateo uh, just hanging out in in their house. I am perfectly OK with that. Hmm. Uh, any final thoughts? Or if not, what wins your week in comedy? Uh, too, that's a good question. Uh, for me, it just comes down to uh, a choice between Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin. And uh, I think the crown would go to Jane the Virgin this week, um, if for no other reason than to just see Rogelio um, literally ride off into the sunset. Which was delightful. Um, I'll split the vote. I'll give it to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, 
with an, a nod to the others. Uh, I enjoyed all of my comedy viewing this week, so don't really. It's hard to to pick just one, but I'll give it to Crazy Ex Girlfriend for its return to mental health and uh, finally Re- uh, Rebecca getting some uh, some help that she so very much needs. So looking forward to where that's going to head uh, head next. But as for where we're going to head next, we're going to take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. You friend don't look too strange. You know in the end I'll always be there but when you're When you're in danger, take a look all around. And I'll be This week in drama and genre, Depine is going to preview The Expanse and then talk, uh, do a little bit of a roundup here with the mid-season or winter finale for Blindspot, Evil Handmade Instrument, and and unveil the mastermind. Then talk a little bit about the affair, two oh nine. Then move on to Quantico over from last week and sort of this up to this point, the season up to this point, as well as Guilty this week's episode. And then uh, wrap things up with Ash versus Evil Dead, the host. And then I'll talk a bit about Limitless Armageddon, uh, the Gravity Falls, uh, I guess, finale for now, mid-season or, or winter or see, I, we'll talk about it. Uh, Weird Megiddon 2, Escape from Reality, and then I'll wrap things up with The Leftovers 1013 before we both talk about Supergirl, How Does She Do It? and Doctor Who, Heaven Sent. Uh, but first up, uh, Sci-Fi or Siffy released the pilot to The Expanse. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. What did you think, Tapayan? Um, first of all, kudos on Sifi. Oh, yeah. I've, I've always wondered how to pronounce that, and Sifi sounds actually about right. Um, that being said, though, I've actually enjoyed uh, Sifi's... Now I can't stop saying it. Um, I've actually enjoyed uh, Sci-Fi's offerings this year, uh, both Dark Matter and Killjoys in the summer. Um, and The Expanse, I think, falls right into that. It's uh, I actually enjoyed the uh, the pilot quite a bit, um, even though it, uh, you know, even though it suffers quite a bit from... Uh, being clearly part of a two-parter, and as I understand it, um, when when Sci-Fi debuts the show, it's going to be uh, spread out over two nights. Um, there's a lot of things that are set up here, but not really followed up on, um, even more so than what would happen in a pilot. Uh, for example, um, Shohrei Akdashlu's um, character, uh, Christian Avarla, uh, is comes in for pretty much all of five minutes. She she plays with her grandson. She um, um, you know she interrogates a prisoner, and that's about it. Uh, Likewise, uh, with the other characters, um, you know, with, with Thomas Jane's character, he picks up on a case, but um, there's there's an indication that it's important, but it doesn't really go go in much beyond that. Um, but that being said, though, there there seems to be quite a bit of promise in this pilot. Um, there's a lot of world building that's uh, that's set up, and um, it does seem pretty interesting um, in how they set it up. The characters themselves are not quite as strong just yet. Um, part of that is the fact that they kept such a strong performer like Shohara Agdashlu um, down to just five minutes. But um, at the same time, uh, I'm really interested to see sort of where this goes. Um, and there's a lot of surprise faces that 
pop up in the pilot for just brief periods of time. Uh, there is Christian Hager pops up in um, a brief, thankless role as uh, the girlfriend of Stephen Strait's James Holden. Um, and uh, there, something happens at the end of the pilot that will not make a lot of people happy. Uh, and But surprisingly, uh, Julian Richings pops up, uh, and, as well as Jonathan Banks. Uh, for just complete brief roles, but it's it's exciting to see them, and I hope um, as the expanse continues later on the season, all of those kind of things do get, uh, you know, they they start to bring in uh, more of the surprise character performers to uh, do small roles like that because that'll definitely be delightful. You said uh, many actors I enjoy as you were describing this show, um, particularly Shara Agdashu, who's of course wonderful in everything I've seen her in. Uh, but even just, you know, bringing in everybody's favorite Canadian, Julian Richings, and, uh, you know, people like that, Jonathan Banks, like, for smaller roles is encouraging. And I've, I've heard a lot of buzz about The Expanse um, from basically since TCA's this summer. So I'm glad, uh, I, you know, I look forward to catching up with this uh, when I get the chance and, and hopefully watching at least the first few uh, before I make too much of a decision about, you know, if I'm going to be able to see it all. And uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that you find it, found it promising. That's very encouraging. Yeah, um, especially I think Thomas Jane is very well cast. As, as his character is supposed to be the sort of um, world-weary character who's accepted the way things are, but um, at the same time has, uh, you know, un- understands that, uh, you know, understands that the the optimism of uh, the younger individuals is uh, exactly where it's going to lead. Uh, I think Thomas Jane sells that kind of character very well, and um, this this role as Detective Miller plays right into his strengths there. So if if nothing else, just watching him and um, Agdashlu should be should be fun. Uh, you know, Stephen Strait sort of is playing this um, kind of character that uh, I feel like Ethan Hawke would have been playing 10 years ago. Uh, but I'm also hopeful that he starts to bring more of his personality into it because um, especially um, events at the end of the pilot suggest that there's going to be much more to his character than, than what's seen in the first hour. So there's hope there too. Interesting. Well, as I say, I'm looking forward to checking this out and... Uh... I will have to re- I'll report back listeners with my thoughts. But for now, let's move on to the next show uh, in our weekend genre and drama. And that's Blind Spot. Now, I've seen the first like five or six of this, but I, you know, hashtag peak TV. I got away from it. Uh, what did you think of the midseason or winter finale? Uh, this two part that we had this this past Monday. And uh, are you glad that you stuck with this far? And will you be watching when it returns? Well, uh I I will be watching it when it returns, but it's not really a priority for me at this point. The, the storylines do tend to get uh, pretty ridiculous, and and um, the winter finale uh, basically covers a Russian sleeper cell that seems to be working for Putin at this point. Um, I'm not sure how how things transfer from the Soviet to uh, present day Russia, but uh, the the storylines are getting are getting ridiculous. But that being said, um, the show's action, while not quite at the par of something like say Banshee or even, or even Arrow um, is still fun to watch. And uh, the performances uh, really do kind of elevate this material. Um, Marianne Jean Baptiste, even though she's doing her best uh, CCH pounder impression is still, uh, you know, pretty interesting to watch. Maybe not in the mid season finale, but um, the episode that preceded the mid season finales, uh, which was, which focused on her and uh, her relationship with uh, her relationship with the only other person who knew about daylight, um, and wh- where she was actually revealed to be uh, at least bisexual, if not completely complete, uh, full out lesbian. So kudos to the show on on uh, positive uh, LGBT representation. Uh, 
I, I think she's been doing good work. And uh, as I mentioned before, I think Jamie Alexander has been doing really good work in, in the title character of Jane Doe. Um, for me, uh, you know, and, and this and uh, this week as well with uh, Patterson, um, who I do, Ash, I believe Ashley Johnson is the name of the uh, actress who plays Patterson. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, she gets some some really strong work to do in the midseason as well. Um, and, and she definitely delivers, too, uh, just as this person sort of traumatized with uh, uh, you know the death of this, uh, the death of her boyfriend slash ex boyfriend slash uh, person that she was maybe in love with, but definitely yes, Ashley Johnson is the name, um, but who definitely died as a result of her bringing him into the investigation. Uh, the performances continue to be pretty good for me. Um, the storylines not so much, but um, if they can keep the performances at this level, then um, I wouldn't be averse to checking in on it every so often. Especially, uh, and but that being said, though, maybe I will check in uh, a couple of episodes after the after the mid season because I'm interested to see sort of where they go with Jane Doe actually telling herself that she was the one who uh, she was the one who caused the actual. Uh, the actual tattoos and the memory wipe and all that. So, uh, so Kate, yes, at, at the end of today's episode, the man with the, do you know about the man with the tree tattoo? Yes. Okay. Um, so at the end of the episode, the man with the tree tattoo comes in. Um, he rescues, uh, he rescues Jane from basically a CIA black site after the, uh, the character actor who pops up in everything, um, and whose name, <laughs> character name and everything I've forgotten now at this point. Uh, but yes, he basically kidnaps her after she's on a rendezvous back. Yes, Michael Gaston's character, uh, Thomas Carter. Uh, she he basically kidnaps her after she's returning from a rendezvous with uh, with Kurt Weller. Which, by the way, her detail continues to be just the literal worst. Now, multiple people know that she sneaks out, and nobody has done anything about it. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Um, but the man with the tree tattoo rescues her, kills. Uh, kills Carter in the process and shows her a video on his phone where she is talking to herself from the past and telling herself that she's the one who um, it's, it was her idea to put the tattoos and to wipe her memory and all of those things. So uh, given how, uh, you know, given how uh, Jamie Alexander has played Jane as this person uh, tr- struggling to come to terms with this idea, it'll be interesting to see how she reacts to this. I'm just hopeful that the writing actually gives her something solid to work with that's the part i'm not so optimistic about yeah i can yeah i can imagine that being a concern um based on the bits of the show that i've seen but um will you tell me this at least uh do we know that she is or is not taylor no we do not Ah. She, she still may be Taylor and may not be Taylor. She still may be born in Africa and not born in Africa. She is she is Schrodinger's Jane Doe. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's move on to our next show, and that is the affair uh, this week, episode two hundred nine. Of course, you've been reviewing the affair over at popoptic.com. and uh, I, like so many other shows, have gotten a few behind on the affair. How have you been feeling about the season, and what did you think of this week's episode? With this season, uh, I've I've enjoyed how they've expanded the perspectives to allow for Helen and Cole, um, and uh, now I'm sort of enjoying, um, you know, especially with the publication of Noah's book, I'm enjoying how that's affecting everyone. Even though we have yet to see uh, until this week's episode, possibly we have yet to see how the book publication has actually affected Helen, um, but I enjoy how that's using uh, how the book's publication sort of not only got Allison to start wondering about what her place in what her place is in Noah's new life, but also um, it has Cole 
only getting back to his family by forcing them to be more honest with each other. Um, and considering that they buy, considering that the law cards do buy the crab shack, I'm interested to see sort of where that goes. And um, I'm also interested to see about this, this, uh, the story of the baby. Um, it's pretty clear to me that, um, that Allison is not having Scotty's baby, but at the same time, the law cards feel protective. Um, having lost three children of their own, that uh, they feel like anything that helps them break the curse is, uh, is something that the whole family needs to rally around and be protective of. And I'm pretty sure that's where they're leading with, with this storyline. Um, so I'm excited to see where they go with that in terms of with, uh, with the Noah, with Cole, with Scotty, as well as with Noah and, and how he thinks about this idea of the baby, even if he's sure it's his, just that nagging feeling in the back. Noah clearly doesn't do well with jealousy as we've seen um, just him decking the uh or well trying and failing miserably to deck the uh critic who trashed his work just proves that he's not able to handle these kind of things well so that might be something actually interesting to see with regards to noah um as well as with cole and the lockhart family as a whole uh and with regards to this week i actually did enjoy how uh they uh you know even though i do enjoy the fact that the show relies on showing different perspectives i enjoyed this week how they sort of incorporated how everyone was dealing with the hurricane and the aftermath of it um and the you know what? What I really loved this week was how Allison uh, actually did stand up to Noah in a sense, maybe not directly, but indirectly, in the sense of making him wait outside while she spent her time with the newborn um, instead of allowing him into the room right away. I think that's a real turning point in the relationship there, and and I'm interested to see where that where that thing sort of develops from there on out. Obviously, we know from uh, in Noah's trial that they uh, that they're still together in the future or that's the present and this the past. I'm, I'm never really sure of the timeline. Um, but we know that they're still together during the time of uh, Noah's murder trial. But, uh, you know, it's it's very obvious at this point to, uh, to Allison, as has been to the viewers throughout the season, that uh, this relationship dynamic is you know, not really that much different from the relationship dynamic she had with Cole and maybe even a little bit more unequal, a little bit more skewed in Noah's favor. And the fact that Allison is recognizing that and standing up to it is, uh, I think, you know, a very encouraging sign. Uh, Meanwhile, Cole's self-destructiveness contrasted against Helen sort of picking up the pieces of her life and moving forward was actually also very interesting to see. And a part of me kind of hopes Cole and Helen sort of get together and become good friends. Pipe dream, maybe. I hope that happens. <laughs> it's just it, that's just really funny <laughs> compared to like the last thing I saw with either of those two characters. I need to yeah. catch up, is what I'm hearing. Uh, what about uh, Quantico? You know, just when I thought they couldn't get any more ludicrous, they amped up the whole ludicrousness uh, this week. It's uh, they're they're now going down a storyline hole that I suspected they would go. Uh, you know, since the beginning of the season, because the whole Alex. Parish is innocent, but everyone thinks she's guilty. Storyline is obviously not something that could have been sustained. Uh, but I actually, frankly, didn't expect them to get to this uh, storyline so fast that everyone is secretly on Alex's side now and trying to find out the real culprits kind of thing that they that they pulled at the end of this week's episode. Uh, so now I'm, I'm interested to see sort of how the writers deal with this shift in storytelling momentum from here on out because. Uh, you know, even though even though the the prediction of Liam being the actual bad guy now seems to have been debunked, uh, there's still hope. I'm still I'm still going to keep hope alive that in a show this twisty, that there are more twists coming that eventually <laughs> prove Liam is the bad guy after all. Uh, but yeah, how how the writers sort of deal with this uh, 
you know, the, the twist still continue to be entertaining enough for me to uh, be interested in seeing what comes next. And uh, more Rick Cosnett is always a good thing. Yeah, fair enough. Big fan of him. I was very glad to see him land somewhere after uh, apparently, you know, his demise elsewhere and other shows that we, we like here at the Televerse. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. see if that sticks. But uh, yes. there's spoilers for another show, so we're not going to do that. Instead, let's move on to our next show this week in a genre drama, and that is Ash versus Evil to talk about dead not sticking. Uh, what did you think of the host? The storyline seems to be stagnant for me as far as Ash versus Evil Dead goes. Um, it seems like every week they're just tackling a new demon uh, for some reason or the other, and, and there doesn't seem to be any momentum on, on the series storyline as a whole. Um, but that being said... Uh, the the effects are interesting and um for me the characters that both Bruce Campbell and Lucy Lawless are playing are um still pretty interesting um to the point that I'm still watching them but that being said though with this week's episode with the host um which saw um the character of Kelly uh, which i believe is played by Dana DiLorenzo um she was possessed for much of the episode um and that made me realize that the show is not so much fun for me when i'm watching just Ash being Ash. For me, the show uh, the show is much more interesting when um, I'm seeing the interplay between Ash and Pablo and Kelly, and especially Ash saying something stupid and Ke- and Kelly immediately calling him out on it. Um, that to me is the most interesting part of the show so far, and the fact that that wasn't there in this week's episode sort of I felt really hurt it uh, because I'm not interested in seeing Kelly possessed. I'm seeing Kelly interested in, uh, you know, I'm interested in seeing Kelly sort of call out Ash on all his uh, stupidity and not and not let him get away with things, even though he may be um, the hero of the show. I'm interested to see how, um, whether or not they actually tie into the season-long storyline, if they tie into the season-long storyline, because it doesn't seem like anyone's really interested in finding out, uh, you know, if there is a big bad behind the Deadites, what's the main motivating factor behind them um ash is trying to put them back in the box uh but even then he's he's sort of run out of ideas after coming out of books and beyond so no one really seems none of the characters really seem interested in actually figuring out the season's large storyline which may mean that the writers aren't interested either uh but uh you know if if that's the case then we need to have a a lot more interactions with the characters themselves and not have the characters be possessed. Um, bring in a guest star every week and have them be possessed, but uh, keep the character interplay. Otherwise, as this week's episode indicates, uh, if you don't have the character inter- interplay, then uh, the show really does suffer for it. And I trust you on that. That sounds about right from the shows I do watch. The, the thing with this show um, is that despite it being a genre show, it doesn't have much in the way of... Um, you know the the fact that the show is only dealing with deadites, even though it does sort of tackle that episode this week, is that uh, we don't get to see a variety of shows, like you know something like say supernatural, a variety of creatures rather. Sorry, not shows. Uh, with something like supernatural, um, especially in its early seasons, uh, before the whole um, you know the, before the whole apocalypse plotline kicked in, um, it was entertaining to see for the first couple of seasons um, the variety of monsters they could deal with and to try to figure out alongside Sam and Dean what kind of creature they would be handling, especially in the later episodes when the viewers were caught up with um, with the ways on how to figure out specific monsters and um, things of that sort. Um, Ash vs. Evil Dead isn't uh, isn't quite gripping in that way because every week, whatever they're facing, they are facing a deadite. Um, and so every week, that's basically what we're seeing at this point is that um, Ash, Kelly, and Pablo encounter a deadite and they attack it while... Uh, 
Ruby and Amanda Fisher and Detective Fisher are sort of on their tail trying to, um, you know, trying to capture Ash, even though he's, you know, because he's a wanted man, even though there seem to be only two rogue cops on his tail. Uh, this week they did go with a different creature, but still the the problems are still exactly the same. Um, and they can only repeat the Ash fights a deadite and wins uh, storyline every, um, you know, so many times before it, you know, before viewers, uh, including me, start to tune out. Yeah, yeah, that is, like you say, that is the threat of having, limiting your creature pool, you have to draw from other places. So I, it sounds like you're still, in general, having fun, even if you have hopes, you know, if, if you'd like it to be better, it sounds like it's still scratching that itch for you. Yeah, it is, it is for now. Uh, like I said, yeah. a lot of that has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, of the interplay between Kelly and, and Ash, uh, if if at some point they kill off Dana DiLorenzo's uh, character Kelly and shift her to another show, that may be the end of my time on this show as well. Uh, and the way they're sort of gearing things up, that is not a very remote possibility. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I will check back in with you i'm sure you'll keep us all updated on twitter for now i'm going to move on to our next uh our next show speaking of scratching itches we have this week on limitless armageddon was not surprised by the the twist the way they come around to it we spend enough time away from the central or the instigating mystery that it seemed like that had to be what was what was headed our way i did think it was effective uh again i'm just the way that they capture the joy and the fun of the brian character continues to work really well and particularly in contrast with the um concerns the very legitimate concerns of his father of course ron rifkin um you know the way that what he brings up his immediate concern of i need to get my son out of this uh, his son doesn't want to get out of this uh but what does that mean what does that mean for this character the father character and what does it mean for the rest of the of the show i like that they uh do not have him the father give an ultimatum or basically write himself off of the show for a while. I like that they make things a little bit more complicated. You know, when the solution is to make it more complicated, I tend to like that. Not always, but I tend to like that. We'll get to you later, Doctor Who. Uh, But that pretty much covers my thoughts on Limited this this week. I'm still really enjoying the show. Uh, But I'm going to move swiftly on to Gravity Falls, because they had Weirdmageddon 2, Escape from Reality, and it was awesome. Um, Also very excited to hear the announcement that this is the penultimate episode of the show. They're just going to have a part three um finale basically hour-long event thing and that's going to wrap up the series because there's there's nothing else they could have done so i'm very glad that 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 disney is letting the show end when it really really should so this episode is all about mabel and all about her relationship with dipper the 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 reality that she's that's been created for her uh as a as a prison to help her escape the hard truth that Dipper had decided to leave and not go home with her, uh, is adorable and fantastic and perfectly Mabelicious. Um, I really, really enjoyed all the details of it and, uh, having those two, uh, the, the two, uh, cute guys show up as the lawyers. I can't remember their names. I should know their names. I'm sorry, gentle listeners. I do not know their names, uh, was wonderful, especially having them at show up at the end because they actually are real. Unlike the rest of the reality, uh, was, was a nice touch. And, um, again, coming back in their penultimate episode to not more, Bill uh, and 
like all this really over the top stuff, but instead, yes, being heightened with things, but having it come down very distinctly to Mabel and Dipper's relationship, I think is key. And it's a big part of why this episode works and why it's so essential to have this be the penultimate episode. Now we've got the team back together. They're all unified and that will allow them to, I, I assume, be triumphant. Maybe the show will end with the end of the world, but I assume they will be triumphant. And I look forward to seeing the personality and creativity with which the showrunners, uh, are able to end the series. So really enjoyed this episode of Gravity Falls. Uh, very excited for what's going to come in the series finale. Have you seen any Gravity Falls, Depayan? I have not. Um, there are a whole slew of uh, well-made animated shows that have um, passed me by. Things like uh, Steven Universe, Gravity Falls, Adventure Time in a regular show. Yeah, so, so there's a whole slew of those shows. And, and uh, I, I really have no excuse um, outside of hashtag peak TV. Um, it's but, a good uh, one, though. It's a good excuse. <laughs> everything I've heard about it makes uh, makes me think that I, I would enjoy it. Uh, but uh, the series finale is a good place to start on the show, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's where you should start. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to do that. Watch the series finale, and I will consider myself all caught up. Absolutely. Well, speaking of caught up, I heard from a few listeners last week who were disappointed uh, that we we didn't talk leftovers last week on the podcast. Um, and I just was not able to, to fit it in What with... Uh, with life last week. And so this week I had like a one-two punch of ridiculous and amazing in different ways. Um, last week's sort of metaphysical dream kind of episode, I know not everybody was a big fan of that. I know, uh, for example, former co-host Simon Howell was less on board with that than maybe some others were, and less than I was. But um, for me, it really did work. The water imagery I thought worked really well. I really liked what we got with Patty, the various different Patties, and what that said about about uh, Kevin and uh, where he was at. I thought it, I, you know incorporating the dad worked really well. Incorporating Virgil worked really well, and and the continuing bird and water imagery as well throughout. As I had already said, um, Justin Thoreau I think often doesn't get enough credit for his work on on the leftovers, and I thought he was really good. And the the way everything culminated at the well was really very powerful. And the way that they make, you know, while we know it's a dream or a death kind of, again, metaphysical quandary, uh, it, it on the whole, it does really work. There are stakes to it still. I still am very invested in whether he's going to push a little girl into a well and theoretically kill her. Um, so... I, they they handled all of that, I thought, really well. And then this week, to, to pick up not where we left off, but instead with Meg and making Meg the, the point of view character for this episode, it was just wonderful. Man, Liv Tyler freaking nailed it this week. When was the last time you heard that, Depayan? Um, no, actually, I, I am I am surprised. I'm not sure if you're being sarcastic or not. But I'm being 100% serious. No, uh, Liv Tyler is, uh, you know, even in the first season, Liv Tyler was one of the weaker performers, which is not a slam against her, but just a credit to just how powerful the acting was across the board. Yeah, she gets a wonderful opportunity here, and she nails it. Uh, I thought she was, at times, moving and chilling. Like creepy like she's got a huge smile right and they're like you know what if instead of just having her smile be this really beacon of positivity and light like so many people cast live tyler for let's have it be just the creepiest thing ever so uh well deployed in this episode i'm not gonna get into specifics so as to not spoil you depayan but um yeah well done uh team on this one and then the, the reveal at the end of the episode was perfect it was so well done it brought so much full circle and incredibly satisfying it made complete sense and it shows the 
the narrative consistency of the season and, and how much this season is interested much more in this question of uh, instead of just being vaguely mysterious, which was more kind of what was going on in the first season, and I, I enjoyed that, th- this season they're looking more at, you know, they, they present a bunch of different mysteries, and some of them you know are never going to be resolved, and others are, and or they seem like they need to be based on how the show has been using its momentum. And so th- this episode really shows, no, everything, we've had a plan, it's all been coming together, and in next week's finale everything's going to come to a boil, come to a head, and it's going to be really very interesting. I can't wait to see what they do for the finale. But I thought this was an incredibly strong episode. It, the the Leftovers has uh, been nailing it this season. Like, I, I don't seem to have another term. So they've been killing it this season. And I thought this was another really gripping episode. Uh, and, yeah. Can't, like, I, there are no words for the crazy and the also incredibly powerful of this show this season. So well done to all involved over at The Leftovers. But uh, speaking of uh, less crazy, but more powerful, I would say, is is the character of Supergirl. Uh, How have you been feeling about this season? And what did you think of this week's episode? Which originally was supposed to be last week's episode. Supergirl, how did she do it? Enjoyed it uh, for the most part. But that being said, this week's episode just exacerbated my concerns about what exactly they're doing with the character of Cat Grant. Um, it feels to me like Cat Grant, uh, they're building up Cat as this sort of, um, you know, feminist symbol who helps Kara realize who she is as a woman. But at the same time, a lot of the problems Kara is facing because she's a woman are being brought about um, a lot by Cat and her behavior. Um, she demeans uh, she demeans both Kara and Supergirl. Um, she constantly seems to be in competition with other women more so than other men. Um, and she's got this attitude of, if I can do it, why can't everyone else? That um, it feels like the show is trying to make it inspiring for Kara, uh, you know, in, and her trying to juggle both her um, her normal life, so-called normal life, and her Supergirl persona. But uh, it feels really grating in the sense that she, like Kat, and, and this is maybe rude to say about what appears to be a single mother uh, running a successful Fortune 500, com- or, well, a successful company um, on her own, especially one that's in print media this, uh, you know, in this era. Uh, it it seems like Kat is really, uh, you know, diminishing the struggles of people who are not her with the idea that no one could have possibly struggled more than her. And this week's episode really brought that kind of thing to the fore. Uh, that being said, though, I'm really enjoying what they're doing with Supergirl in terms of having her, uh, you know, in terms of having her have multiple enemies. And um, this week, having Maxwell Lord sort of be obsessed with uncovering who she is, I think, really adds another element to her having to be careful, uh, but also you know, having to save other people as well. And, um, you know, once uh, with with Hank Henshaw's, I believe last week's episode, which was supposed to be this week's episode, uh, disclaimer, I because I wanted to watch everything in the proper order, I actually did not see last week's episode, uh, opting instead to watch this week's episode so that I, I have uh, no kind of muddled timeline in my head. Uh, but as I understand, in, in, uh, in last week's episode, they did finally expose that Henshaw was also not someone to be trusted. So with Supergirl having all these multiple enemies to look out for, while still trying to do, you know, fundamentally do good for the city. Uh, I'm actually really excited to see how they how they deal with sort of these character conflicts. Uh, Cat Grant, though, not doing it for me. Is she doing anything for you? Oh, absolutely. I actually really like what they give her this week. Um, so that's interesting to hear your concerns about the character and the direction and the uh, 
potentially uh, problematic uh, approach to writing that character. I really like that they make her because the way that she's introduced, given you know the the portrayals of powerful women, uh, especially financially or powerful in business, uh, women on TV. Um, there are certain expectations that I had that I'm sure other people had. And one of them was not that she was actually a really supportive, loving mother. Uh, definitely would not have pegged that as a thing for the character. But I think they do a really good job here with having, like, starting this transformation that they clearly wanted to do with Kat from this very um, one-dimensional figure to a more like you say inspirational figure for for Kara um there's a little bit of confusion back and forth with um because the two episodes are out of order about um uh, Kara talking about her parents with Kat uh so when you watch the next episode or last week's episode I should say um you'll see what I'm talking about but um so there's a little moment of awkwardness here when she's talking about her mom and we know that she has already told Kat that uh, her mom died when she was a kid. So, you know, th- that's a little awkward, but that's the only blip, I would say, in watching these two episodes out of order. On the whole, it does work actually surprisingly well. So kudos to the the creative team for being comfortable switching those two around uh, because of the events of Paris. Um, the Yeah, I, I'm really liking what they're doing with Kat basically because they're subverting my expectations and they're in, instead of making her uh antagonist they're making her something else and she will very likely also be an antagonist um i think Kara wisely is not going oh she's so nice now let's tell her my secret identity which is good but um you know again it's sort of like with jane i'm much more interested in that part of the show than i am in the romantic part of the show uh certainly the whole wind pining part of the show is not an interest to me um so yeah maybe it's just because i continue to have lower expectations for supergirl than i do for other shows that i'm watching maybe it's just that something as simple as that but um i'm more and more enjoying the the cat corner of the show actually Okay, well, no, that's uh, that's that's interesting to hear. It's it's sort of it's uh, I, I get the feeling with the character of Cat that maybe she'll play differently different people. So it's interesting to hear how she's playing uh, for you. But uh, as far as the romantic aspects go, I'm actually 100 percent with you. I'm not I'm not really interested in the idea of oh, Wynn's pining for Kara, who's pining for James, who's pining for Lucy Lane. Um, while at the same time, I, I feel like uh, you know the the whole James uh, romance with Lucy Lane. Uh, really undercuts his character moment from episode two about how he felt like he was always in Superman shadow, which was episode two or episode three, um, where he felt like he was always in Superman shadow and he wanted, he, part of his reason for moving to national city was to, um, sort of become his own person. But, uh, here he is dating the younger sister of Superman's bow. So not really distancing yourself. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but no, at the same time, uh, the romantic aspects, not, not interesting. Yeah. Uh, are you interested in, in seeing sort of Hank Hemshaw and his glowy red eyes and, and following no, that idea? Not at all. How about you? <laughs> um, sort of, but not really. Uh, I mean, the thing with David Harewood is that I'm, I'm kind of sad that they've pushed him back into the serious Homeland-esque persona after seeing how funny he can be in Selfie. Uh, I was kind of hoping he would be a little lighter here, but he seems to have been saddled with that, um, you know, with, with sort of the dark, angsty character type. Uh, 
but I'm I'm kind of interested in in the red eyes just to see sort of if he's a Kryptonian or if he's another race, um, and if he's another race that could open up some interesting storytelling possibilities in terms of introducing more aliens um, into sort of Supergirl stratosphere and how she deals with that idea of of figuring out whether they're a friend or foe. Uh, but outside of that, like I'm I'm interested in Hemshaw's glowy red eyes insofar as much as it could lead to bigger storylines down the road, not on its own. I don't I don't need Hamshaw to also be an alien just for him to be driven, you know, to be a driven DEO agent um who's hard on Kara but at the same time uh trusts her abilities. Yeah, um they're going to have to go somewhere really creative for me to be uh, or I, sh- I shouldn't say be, for me to become invested because I am not invested uh right now. Uh, I do like that actor as you say, so I hope that they give him more interesting material than they are currently foreshadowing, but hey, it might happen. It could certainly happen. Uh, and I think he'll rise to the occasion if they do. Um, but that, yeah, that I really am not invested in, in that. But what I uh, am invested in is the argument we're about to have about Doctor Who, having sent, uh, because this is, again, part two of three of their three-part season finale, or series finale, I should say. Um, and the internet loves this and every critic I know loves this and thinks it's one of the best episodes of television of this year and was absolutely blown away by it. And I was, uh, vaguely annoyed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, not interested. Uh, I was rolling my eyes. I just kept of coursing all the way through and it doesn't, doesn't help that I had heard buzz of this being an all time great episode before I watched it. That, that, that never helps. Um, I wasn't actively thinking about that, but I'm sure that subconsciously played some part. Um, but mostly I, I just, I, I don't care about this episode and it feels very, very contrived to me. I didn't, it felt very little actual, uh, emotional connection with it. It all feels like stuff I've seen the show do before. Um, so I actually have such a, I actually have such a disconnect between, my experience watching this episode and what I see in it and what everybody else does, I'm not actually sure I trust my own opinion on it because lots of people whose opinions I respect love this. Um, and I can see why, but I disagree completely. So um, I want you to convince me, Defiant. Uh, I don't know if you love this or not, but I know you're more positive than I am because you kind of would have to be. So how did you feel about Heaven Sent? And uh, if you did love it like everybody else seems to have, Please convince me that I am wrong for not loving it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I don't know about love. I did, I did greatly enjoy this episode. Uh, I don't know about best of the year. That kind of thing is, um, you know, giving it that kind of distinction is sort of, um, you know, is sort of making me pause. Uh, but at the same time, I did quite enjoy it. Uh, I, I haven't seen any of the fan criticism, so uh, I, any of the, you know, any of the. Uh, reviews of this of this episode, so I'm not sure if this kind of thing has been covered, but I enjoyed it as a sense of sort of exploration of grief and how people try to move on after the death after the death of a loved one, sort of being stuck in their own personal hell for what feels like an eternity, um, sort of going through the motions without seemingly making any kind of change, uh, and how just when they come to terms with one aspect of it, something comes along to just push them right back down, you know, right back down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and they have to climb back out all over again. Um, I enjoyed it all in those senses, uh, you know, just, just to see the doctor try to deal with Clara's death and um, try to, you know, try to get out of this own personal hell of his own grieving um, to finally come out on the other side, uh, you know, 
maybe not completely over Clara's death, but having finally come to terms with it to the point that she's not haunting him the way um, the way she seemed to be over, through the episode. I mean, the, the TARDIS was supposed to be his sort of, I, I guess, the Doctor Who version of the mind of Sherlock's mind palace, um, the place where he goes when he needs to really think. But it sort of felt like Clara was haunting him there, even though he kept seeking her out. It felt like he was seeking her out because he knew she'd be there uh, because he couldn't take his mind off the fact that she was really gone. So that was why I enjoyed this episode. Does that line up with what you saw in the episode? And, uh, or, or did you just, or did, did not strike that chord with you? I, I mean, I love what you're saying about it. I think that's really spot on. And I love that concept and that idea. I, I really like the idea of he can't, he needs to see her, but he can't, he knows she's gone. So he can't really see her. So we see the back of her head until we do finally interact with her and actually see her when he most needs her in this episode. However, um, what you were just saying is way more insightful to me than what I was watching. So, uh, and I, again, like I said, I know I'm alone in this. I know most of our listeners, if not all of our listeners are, fully on board with this episode are likely fully on board with this episode, but um, there's just too many cheats throughout this episode that it, it was really frustrating to me and I couldn't let them go because they kept establishing rules and then breaking them when it was most convenient, when they wanted to have a flourish. So every room res- resets except the two rooms that the plot needs to not reset, which are the, uh, the, the, the teleportation room or, you know, basically kind of regeneration room and the diamond ish wall room. Those two rooms don't reset because if they do reset, the story doesn't work. And that's no, that, bad that, writing. That's 100% true. That, that diamond wall thing bothered me. The fact that I, I didn't even understand for a while that he was successfully punching through it because I figured that every time he came back, that that wall would have been just back to its usual state. Exactly. And there shouldn't have been dust accumulating in the room where he kept frying himself and there shouldn't be a skull because that room should reset as well. Uh, And as soon as he leaves, when he comes back to fry himself, there should be nothing there. He shouldn't be able to come back and find his skull because it should have reset. Uh, And how did it like how did he have a coat there when before he was in the room, the initial status of the room was there was not a change of his clothing there. So that is there to be clever so that he can be teased by a mystery so that he can figure it out when the plot requires him to. So there was just too much stuff like that. Um, you know, like when Moffat and the, the show right now, this current incarnation, they love uh, self-causing like paradox loops. Uh, this is a thing, uh, you know, we, we did it earlier this season, like who wrote Beethoven's Fifth is, you know, that idea that they came back to earlier. Um and so for me, that was irritating. Um, the doctor knows everything and does something seemingly spontaneously, but actually he's been planning it the whole time and it's not actually, and he's so much cleverer than us is also something I'm very tired of. And there's a lot of that in this episode. Um, I also didn't like that. It, it needs to be 2 billion years. It can't be something. It has to be the most epic of all epic things that have ever been epic. Um, and it didn't help for me that the score, I, I've seen a lot of people praise the score. I hated the score to this episode besides the few spots that were really, um, soft really gently handled i shouldn't say soft but gently handled so more spare in the score but i mean frequently i just couldn't even hear what the dialogue was i had to turn the volume way up so i could hear the 
ridiculous amount of, of voiceover that we got. And so that I could, like, I couldn't hear the bird story. I just couldn't even hear what he was saying. I had to keep going back. And every time I went back, the score bothered me more. And I was drawn more and more out of Capaldi's performance. Um, so there's that. And then he he remembers dying every time so that it can be more tragic. I mean, why? He doesn't. Re- why would he? He shouldn't remember it. But they want it to be the most tragic thing ever, guys, ever. So he does. Um, I, I enjoy your slight descent into Dahlia territory there. I, yeah, it's just uh, there's just too, so many things like that that just it feels like it's there to make the doctor is like the greatest doctor that has ever been a doctor. And um, he's so good, guys, that he will sacrifice himself for two billion years every single day because that's how good he is. Um, it just it's too over it just it feels false to me it doesn't it's not interesting it's just uh again that's to me i recognize your mileage may vary is any of this striking a chord with you i don't how do you feel about you know am i just crazy talk over here no 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 it's uh you know everything you're saying is completely valid and and it's sort of uh you know listening to you i'm reminded of the fact that the one thing that bugged me as soon as i realized this it was an as soon as uh, sort of i i came to the interpretation that was an exploration of his grief over losing clara is that what about all the other companions the doctor has lost so many people you know over the course of his existence he shouldn't be remembering just clara he should be having flashbacks to all the people he has lost not just the companions but all you know the people who have fought alongside him and and have given his lives in in pursuit of one of his ideas um foolish noble whatever it may have been at the time uh, so that part definitely did bother me and and uh, you know the the plot holes you're pointing out Absolutely 100% valid, um, especially with the skull. I didn't even think of that during the episode, but now that you're bringing it up, I have like no way to, you know, I, I can't think of any way to hand wave that except that that you need you need that room to not reset to make the plot work. But no, you're 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 not wrong in any of those regards. Um, in in any of the points you're making, I, I guess it just depends on on how well the how well the show the episode emotionally resonated, despite these issues. Not mm-hmm. you know not because of them. Yeah. And the other thing I would point, I think you bring up an excellent point about the other companions. And yes, there have only been a very few Doctor Who companions who have died while they were active companions. It's depending on if you count Sarah Kingdom as a companion, it's it's Katarina who's barely in like two episodes and not stories, but episodes uh, of like as a companion of Doctor Who. Um, her death is still really effective when it happens actually for me uh back in the classic era then you have sarah kingdom who people argue about whether she's a companion i'd say sure why not um and she dies you have adric of course who memorably dies in Earthshock, a fifth doctor companion a fourth and fifth doctor companion i should say um i may be forgetting one other like are they a companion or aren't they but really it's just the big ones are adric and then now clara and we've had other companions who have died like, like amy but she died of, you know, long life <laughs> in yeah. the past. You know, but the thing is, when you're the doctor and you've now lived, oh, if he has all his memories, he's lived for two billion and several uh, thousand years. What is the difference of dying when you're, you know, like being accepting your death and, and dying in a way that you have, you know, taken upon yourself uh when you're 20, what is she, five, six, something, versus when you're 85? Like, compared to 2 billion, what is the difference there? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's all the same. And um, 
I, I feel like for me, the, the one character, uh, you know, the one character who was really missing was the Brigadier. Uh, when, mm-hmm. when Eleven found out that the Brigadier was dead, which, which was, I guess, something that had to be written in the show due to the, the performer's real life death, it seemed to hit him really hard. And at that moment, he should be remembering that one as well. Um, but no, you're right in that sense, and and that is something that this that they talked about this very season with a shoulder. Um, you know, the the doctor berated her for not caring about human life when she said the exact same thing that it's, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me whether uh, you know when they're dying at eighty five or they're dying at twenty five, they're all just specks in my life. Uh, but at the same time, he just goes through a two billion, uh, you know, two billion year mourning period just for one death while seemingly. Uh, brushing aside the rest almost demeaningly uh, yeah it it could have it could work as an exploration of grief as a whole if he was you know if maybe clara's debt was the tipping point to um uh, you know clara's debt was a tipping point that forced him to face all the other debts that he was running away from but uh no it, it definitely didn't it definitely didn't go into that um I still find the episode work, but listening to you, I'm definitely starting to find, uh, you know, I'm starting to find my my issues with it as well. I will be completely honest. Well, and I'm very glad that it works so well for you on a metaphorical level and on a thematic level. And, uh, you know, I think I, I wish I had had that same connection to it that everybody else did because everybody else loves it so much. And I want to. I and people may not believe me when I say this, uh, but I do always hope to really love episodes of Doctor Who. I mean, this is a show that at various points has been one of my favorite shows ever made. Uh, I, I, In case there are any new listeners, I've seen every episode of Doctor Who. I've seen episodes that don't exist anymore, but have been recreated with audio files and set photos. I mean, I've seen all of Doctor Who. I'm very connected to this show in general. The fact that I'm so not connected to this episode that everybody else is, is like, it's very disheartening for me. Um, and it just really underlines for me the choice that I made earlier this season to only write one review for each multi multiple part episode or story. Um, so I'll have a review next week for the last three parter that we got um, that we're getting here at the end of the season uh, because I just don't have the passion for it that I feel like you kind of need to write thoughtful weekly uh reviews so instead i've been approaching it as like a story by story basis i'll have lots of thoughts about that over at pop up dick this coming this coming saturday but um yeah i'm glad y'all love it i wish i did too um let me ask you this though uh is the 12th doctor as a whole working for you because uh i don't feel like like i mean and and this episode being completely focused on on 12 as a whole sort of made me um, realize this as well, but I don't feel like the twelfth Doctor is working for me as a whole the way ten or eleven did. Is is he working for you in that sense? Um, in general, yes. I was a little disheartened to see them ditch the hoodie in favor of the the jacket again this week because I think actually little you know subtle touches like putting him in a hoodie, uh, over the this, this season have been very um very helpful in examining the character and going in new like just making the tweaks they've made to that character um this season and maybe at the end of last season as well i think those have worked really well i there's a lot that i've really liked about this season um even if i don't have the connection the emotional connection to the character that i i would like to have but i have a lot of respect for capaldi as an actor and uh, i think he's been phenomenal in some of the episodes this season Uh, i just keep going back to um the the first shoulder episode particularly uh, I was really connected with the doctor there or or him, you know, rocking out on guitar. Just such a fun 
thing to add to the character. That's That's got to be one of the, the great Doctor Who entrances when he rides in on the tank, uh, blaring on his guitar, you know, like... That's the kind of stuff that I really get have gotten into this season, and um, I hope that I will. I mean, I also don't care about the return of Gallifrey at all, so that is also hampering my experience with this episode. But um, hopefully, I will come back around with the season finale. Yeah, well, hopefully, uh, because I mean, uh, it's it's sort of uh, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned the the tank entrance with the. Uh, guitar because for me that was that was one of the things that i found really grating about the 12th doctor like they they turned him into uh they turned him into poochie from the simpsons uh, in a way that the, <laughs> the, it felt like they're trying to make they're trying too hard to make him look cool and uh, i used to like i used to enjoy those kind of entrances when 11 would do them uh because 11 sort of made entrances with a flourish that didn't really need flourishes like when when he popped up on the um you know, when he popped up on the priest's ship um, to save Amy, he just sort of tipped back his hood when they thought he was going to be headless. And he's like, surprise! And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I enjoyed when Eleven made those kind of entrances. But with Twelve, it feels like they're amping it up too much to the point that it it feels artificial in a way that it, it didn't for me with 10 or 11. Fair enough. That's interesting. I know um, this most recent Doctor has been less um accessible for some people i think some of that has been by design with both the performance and the writing um so i i want our listeners to chime in on that i would love to hear from listeners about what they thought of this episode and what they're thinking of this season and and the current doctor as well because i think that you bring up some interesting points about uh this doctor and um i i'm 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 intrigued by our difference of you know the difference in our takes of what is most interesting and what is least interesting about this doctor so i would love to hear from some of our listeners on that topic but to wrap up what has been a somewhat truncated week in tv what wins your week in genre and drama uh well let's see uh i'm actually not sure that's that's a good question um i'm inclined to split the vote between supergirl and expanse and 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 uh way because uh, i feel like both shows showed a lot of potential this week in terms of um what they can be and and with the expanse uh you know obviously uh there's a second part of it uh, like i mentioned during the review um that i'd really have to see to be able to understand where they're actually going with some of these characters and ideas um but I think both Supergirl and, and The Expanse showed uh, some level of real promise in, in where they can go from here on out that will be really exciting to see. So I'm going to cheat and split the vote between the two. And I'm definitely going to give it to The Leftovers. 1013, such a powerful uh, last few episodes. And they just, they're killing it over there. I'm looking forward to the, the season finale next week. But that wraps up our week in genre drama. And so we'll take a break and come back with our season spotlight on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, season one. She alive, damn it. You got a secret. I am one of the Indiana Mole women. From the news. I spent 15 years in that bunker eating beans out of a Florida Marlins cap. I just want to be a normal person. I'm having candy for dinner. Scram, you stupid ho- Job. You'll need to be here by six every morning to get Buckley up for school. Then get me up at ten, but don't wake me up. Please tell me that you're normal. Oh, I'm very normal. I've had everything normal happen to me. You yell in your sleep. You bite my nails, and we still don't know why you're afraid of Velcro. Life beats you up. You can either curl up in a ball and die, or you can stand up and say we're different, and you can't break us. 
Look out, New York. Nothing can stop us now. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolzik, TV editor of PopOptic.com, and I'm joined once again by Dipayan Sengupta, managing editor for TV for PopOptic.com. And this week we are doing a season spotlight on what I feel has become, uh, it was somewhat, I felt like it was pretty talked about at the time, but it has become towards the end of the year here a bit of an underrated gem over at Netflix, and that's Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt season one. Uh, this one, I, I was a little... Sl- I, I liked it, but I, I didn't love it immediately. And, and by the end of the season was really on board. Uh, I'm not as huge on the end of the season either. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But uh, I was very glad when I started rewatching it in preparation for the season spotlight to actually slip right back in into the show. It rewatches really well. And uh, I had a lot of fun. I introduced it to my my couple of my siblings and, and my parents, and they were also really enjoying it too. So I was very glad to go back and spend a little bit more time with Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I, and I think uh, I think it's one of the stronger uh, new shows of this year. What, what do you think about Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? And do, would you agree or would you disagree that it's been uh, under you know a bit overlooked here at the end of the year? Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It's been overlooked, especially given how much positive buzz it generated when it came out. Uh, I uh, I think this may be uh, one of the drawbacks of, of the um, streaming model. And um, if I may go off on a little bit of, ta- of a tangent here. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I sort of saw this kind of same situation when BoJack Horseman and Rick and Morty sort of came out um, at the same time. Um, well, when Rick and Morty was going week to week, um, as as is its wont, and BoJack Horseman was released all in a season, um, it felt like a lot of people talked about BoJack Horseman for a couple of weeks and then... Um, you know, sort of faded out from it because everyone had already spoken about it and discussed everything that needed to be discussed. Um, whereas with Rick and Morty, it, it kept resurfacing week after week uh, to the point that there were conversations about being possibly the best animated show on the air now. And like a month after BoJack Horseman's second uh, second season release, I, I kept saying, guys, you've forgotten about BoJack Horseman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt did, uh, does suffer a bit from that as well. It's uh, it's one of the drawbacks of the streaming model that people haven't figured out perhaps how to keep it in the conversation for extended stretches of time when it doesn't naturally come up week after week um, just by virtue of having new episodes released. Um, that being said, though, I'm, I'm, I'm with you as far as the first season goes. It was, it was hugely entertaining for me. Um, Ellie Kemper, um, even though I was somewhat of a fan from her from um, – Although I didn't watch The Office during her t- her tenure there, uh, I did I did catch glimpses of her and and I did enjoy her parts the uh, parts that I did see, um, and you know. But that being said, though, I, I really did enjoy her in a full on leading lady role here. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of the supporting cast, especially Titus Burgess and um, Carol Kane. Both of them were fantastic in their roles, and and I you know I, I even enjoyed the, the surprise uh, the surprise appearance of Reverend Richard Wayne Gary Wayne, who I really feel is a very natural progression for John Hamm um, as a character <laughs> to play after Don Draper, just this this huckster who uses his powers of persuasion persuasion for evil uh, is just a perfect a perfect transition for his career to go from uh, you know Mad Men to Kimmy Schmidt. 
Let's talk a little bit about Reverend Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne. First of all, I love that name. It has not gotten any worse uh, over the course of the year. I still absolutely adore it. Um, and the way that they hold out on that uh, that character until the end of the season and do bring him back in such a significant way, I think works so well. He He's a weight that hangs over her throughout the whole beginning of the season and then to finally have her face him at the end it's just such a natural progression and it works really well and bringing in John Hamm uh, well yes maybe he's gotten a little overexposed in comedy uh, in the past couple years he just keeps popping up everywhere to the point where uh, I I could actually use a little space or it would be nice to see him play a different kind of character he tends to go very wacky when he's doing comedic uh, spots which I get he's very good at that but um uh, I could use maybe use a different tone from him in the next couple comedic appearances I see him in, but here it just works so well. I love when he's. I mean, one of the funniest moments in, in the season is when he's doing the karate or whatever it is. Yes. Oh my god, it's hilarious. It's. Uh, I, I think calling it actual karate is stretching it. He just sort of chops the air and yells karate, and <laughs> every time they show it, I'm just, I just, you know, practically roll on the floor laughing. It never gets old. That's what you call commitment. That's what that is. <laughs> what are the other parts of the of the season that stand out to you? Are there other guest performances, or does it really come down to Kimmy and and Titus? Well, uh, I, I think for me, uh, you know, the, the one the one performance I thought was really underrated over the course of the season, even when it was airing, um, was the part of Dylan Jalula as Xanthippe. Um, I thought she wrote her, I, I thought she, you know, she played really well off of both Ellie Kemper and Jane Krakowski, both of whom are, you know, complete comedy veterans. And uh, Dylan Jalula, this person I did not know before Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt, really impressed me in the roles. Uh, the character itself was was really good in the sense that, uh, you know, she was multi-layered. She she had this sort of um, vendetta against uh, Kimmy, but that didn't make her just completely. The show didn't make her completely evil. It it shaded her in uh, you know shades of gray as well, especially as we see in the, in the episode with um, with Pinot Noir. Um, you know she 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 also suffers from some degree of actual peer pressure, and uh, you know she's smart, but she feels the need to hide it. And I felt like those things were really relatable in the sense that. Uh, I'd, I'd be really interested to see more from her in, in season two. Um, I did enjoy also all of Kimmy's romantic interests in the sense that they were all pretty much uh, crazy in their own separate ways. Um, although the part I the part I didn't quite enjoy was Ki Hong Lee having to do an accent, which I believe Aziz Ansari, uh, you know, Aziz Ansari did uh, address this in Master of None. The idea that if if you listen to Ki Hong Lee's um, interviews outside of Kimmy Schmidt, um, he doesn't have an accent, but then he's on the show and he has to do an accent. And while I understand that it was necessary for the green card element and all of those things, I um, maybe would have preferred him to have his natural accent. But that's possibly a minor quibble. Uh, I especially did enjoy Logan's. Um, who was, I think, uh, Kimmy's boyfriend before Dong. Um, I enjoyed how completely clueless and out of touch Logan was with average people. She asked him to bring ice and he brings artisanal ice just for meticulously created tiny cubes and, and touches of that sort. Or just I, I just absolutely love that. As well as his adoration of Daddy's Boy, which is, I think, perhaps the best end tag in a, in a season that was full of amazing end tags. Yeah, no, that was pretty delightful. And yeah, I agree. I did really like the love interest and, and Dong is great in the way that they they brought that uh, and had her choose him, I thought was very effective. And uh, I ab- absolutely, I also absolutely agree about the accent. And like, there's, there's some yeah stuff in this season, right? 
that's my super eloquent way of saying problematic. Yeah. I really don't like what they do with Jackie Lynn. Like it, it bothered me a lot less this most recent time watching it. Um, and I don't know if I'm okay with that. I feel like it should bother me more than it did the second time watching it. Maybe just because I knew what to expect, but um, yeah, that's, I'm not cool. I'm not cool with that. Uh, I'm not cool with um, the accent when um, you really don't need that heavy of one. I think they go out of the way to not make him the butt of the joke and to make, uh, you know, Kimmy understand her, understand him really easily. And it's, it's other people that are the joke. So I think that, you know, it's not as problematic as I, that's the key word apparently in this paragraph for me. It's not as problematic as other similar storylines are on other shows, but it's still a bit of a, an uneasiness to me. And I kind of just trust my gut on that. If I feel uneasy about it and I don't, you don't always feel comfortable laughing. Probably there's something there for me to examine, at least in my own reaction to it, if not in the source material. Um, but yeah, between that and the Jackie Lynn stuff, uh, not as, you know, I can't a hundred percent be behind everything in this, this first season, but I'm hoping that with some perspective and, you know, getting feedback from the audience and reading, hopefully some think pieces and stuff that people wrote up about the treatment of race on this season, that'll be something that is addressed a bit in season two. Yeah, but definitely. I mean, with 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 the Jackie Lynn storyline, I I also had some issues with it, but um at the same time it didn't feel like uh it didn't feel like well what would what would white characters playing Native American be? Red face? I guess it would be red face. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, I uh, the red face didn't feel quite like red face to me because it wasn't uh, like they were using Jacqueline, Jacqueline's character to make fun of Native Americans as a whole. Um it was just sort of her ridiculous notions of what constituted what constituted um being american or being uh you know being a rich upper class american in a way um so in that sense it, i didn't have quite as much a problem with the jacqueline storyline um as as uh, maybe some other people did but at the same time if that storyline were to just mysteriously vanish in season 2 i would definitely think the show would be stronger for it Let's talk about instead some of the things that I most loved about the season. And we got to kick things off with the music. Uh, it's one of the best theme songs of the year. One of the catchiest. And uh, it's definitely in contention for the Smorgasbord G uh, best new theme song category for me. Uh, let alone something like Pinot Noir or how about the Spider-Man song? <laughs> yes. And and uh, yeah, and of course, I'm, I'm going to mention again Daddy's Boy because I have gone back and watched that so many times and just how hilarious it is, but also how well sung it is and how well performed it is, even in those just two minutes of it. I, I continue to be impressed by that. <laughs> what are the other elements that most stand out for you? What are, what are you taking away from from this season? Uh, well, for me, um, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the show was really solid at how it showed uh, Kimmy's sort of, uh, you know, grappling with the emotional consequences of uh, having her life stunted and wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to just, uh, you know, jump out and grab everything at once that she feels like she's missed over the last few years. I felt like that worked really well as a metaphor for people who, um, you know, maybe who aren't quite 30, but who come to big cities in their early 20s for perhaps university or something of that sort and want to just, uh, you know, catch on to everything that they feel like they've missed over the time, uh, you know, over, over their time living in a small town. I, I felt like that worked really well as a metaphor. And for me, the real strength of the show lied in, uh, you know, the 
the guest stars who came in um, week in, week out. Uh, for me, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, even though I realized it didn't quite work well for some people, worked really well for me. Um, Richard Kind showing up as the completely apathetic um, you know, completely apathetic, disinterested uh, teacher for Kimmy was definitely one of the season highlights. Uh, Dean Norris showing up as Lilloop, the the straight coach for Titus, also a highlight. As well as, uh, you know, going back to Tim Blake Nelson, Kiernan Shipka as uh, Kimmy with the eyes and uh, the I and Y switched. Also, uh, you know, also a highlight for me. And I really hope she pops back in season two as well. Uh, what about you? How did you feel about the guest stars? Oh, they're super fun. I mean, even just some, even somebody as over the top as Martin Short in I want to say like the third or fourth episode is like is really funny and in a different kind of funny. It's nice that they bring in these different actors to play often very distinct characters, but you know, funny in different in different ways and to bring up different sides of the characters, which I think is so important. Uh, the more I re-examine these episodes, the more impressed I am with Ellie Kemper. She really does make this character sing in a way that other people could have done the wacky or other people could have done like the damaged, but she really blends those two in this beautiful way that keeps Kimmy um, very centered and very determined and very optimistic in sort of the Leslie Nope kind of variety, but also like weird and unapolog- unapologetically so. I think that's so important for this character for with, you know, with her background. I mean, I, I keep thinking with this show of that article that I read out there. Um, I don't remember where we mentioned it on the podcast back when the show first premiered, but somebody who had escaped a doomsday cult wrote an article about uh, how this was actually a really accurate depiction of what it feels like to get out of a doomsday cult and then have to uh, uh, you know, re kind of reintegrate back into society. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. You guys, I, I'm sure if you search for it, listeners, you'll be able to find that article. Um, but you know, I, th- this is such an easy character to turn into the butt of the joke and she never is. Uh, and I think that's because of the, the, the love that the writers and the performers have for this character. It really is crucial to, to making the show come together. The other people you've mentioned are, are all great. Uh, but I guess for me, it really does all come back to the writing and, and that central performance. Yeah, no, I uh, 100% agree. Ellie Kemper is a big, big reason why the show works as well as it does. She is just absolutely perfectly cast in this, in this character to the point that, uh, you know, I, I did wonder at some points during the season if um, if the writers wrote, the wrote you know, if Tina Fey, Robert Carlock um, developed this show with the idea of, uh, you know, with the idea of that if Ellie Kemper is not in the lead role, then nobody's going to be in the lead role because it seems so perfectly tailored um, to her and, and she delivers on all fronts so effectively with this character that, uh, you know, if... Uh, just the the show uh, 100% for me would not be as successful as it is if uh if it weren't for her in the, in the central performance yeah and and like you say um this really does capture an element of lost at 30 very well that i mean you would think it shouldn't you and you mentioned you know it also connects to this like somebody younger who you know doesn't have the stunting that that this character has had um, coming to a new city. But I, I think it even captures, I mean, this has been a great year for shows about people in their late twenties, turning 30 or early thirties. I mean, you've had uh, this one, there's uh, master of none recently, and there, but there've been a whole slew of them um, that have really examined that it's been as somebody who turned 30 this year, I've been, it's more been on my radar and I've been uh, more aware of it, but I, you know, her, um, 
determination and her feeling lost and feeling out of touch with everything else because this is not what she expected her life to be or she it's not her life isn't what everybody else expects from her because you know she's had this very challenging background of course um hopefully most people can't connect to that but i think i think a lot of people can connect to the idea of uh putting on a facade of of normalcy and feeling like uh you're very disconnected from this perception you and others have of what life at a particular age is supposed to be. And um, they really do a wonderful, I, I think it's, I would be very surprised, like you said, if they did not create the show with her in mind. And so they incorporated that element into it, even maybe subtextually or, or subconsciously. But, um, but I, I do see that thread there as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, whether or not you've been a doomsday cult, um, Kimmy Schmidt men- mentioning um, to the tutor, whose name I forget at this point, um, that, oh, yeah, I'm I'm normal. I've had every normal thing happen to me. Uh, I feel like we've all uh, had the, you know, we've all had the sense to, if not explicitly say that, actually say that in our heads to people, uh, no, at, at, at just various points during our life. Yeah, that's certainly relatable. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just... Um... There's there's a sense of wonder to the character of El, uh, of of Kimmy um, that is really infectious and I mean this is something I've enjoyed very much about this season of Crazy Ex Girlfriend every title ends with an exclamation point because that is how this character approaches the world and um, and it's just it's so it's so joy filled it's it's wonderful to have a show so joyful um, to watch and that you can have a messy and a dark and a complicated life, but also a joyful one at the same time is, is a really cool concept. Not everything works about the season for me. We've already talked about some of the problematic racial issues, but also I would say the end of the season, um, while the trial comes together in a nice way, I really am not entertained by the whole Marsha Clark thing, uh, with those two, uh, actors coming in as the, you know, the former OJ defense team. Like that really didn't work for me. Um, are there any? Did you have any trouble spots with this season? Um, well, I mean, for me, the the trial did work for me in the sense that um, it showed Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne, that even though he was a comic character who just uh, you know r- jumps around in his basement yelling karate, he's also understandably a very malevolent entity who uh, just with his sheer charm wins over uh, you know even the defense lawyers, as incompetent as they are. Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne clearly has a hand in winning them over. He wins over the jury um, and the sense of crushing helplessness that uh, Kimmy must feel um, Kimmy, Cindy, uh, all the, all the, uh, you know, all the, all the unwitting cult members uh, must feel at the sense of uh, Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne, just winning everyone over in the town um, uh, really resonated with me. So I enjoyed the trial, if only for that aspect alone. Um, As far as things that didn't work for me, uh, Nothing is really jumping to mind outside of what I've already addressed in terms of Dong, uh, Dong's accent, in terms of uh, the Jackie Lin part. Uh, I I actually did enjoy several aspects of the season that uh, you know that a lot of that I noticed subsequently a lot of other people didn't from um, Kimmy's father to uh, the small town in Indiana and and all those kind of things. Uh, but what I really enjoyed the most was for me the the chemistry, not only Ellie Kemper's performance, but also um, the chemistry between um, Kimmy, Titus, and Lillian. Um, I felt like that was that was a really strong aspect of the season, and and as as good as Ellie Kemper's casting was, um, the selection of Titus Burgess 
and Carol Kane in those two roles also worked um, fantastically. And and just uh, even when even when uh, Kimmy wasn't around, just to see Titus and and Lillian um, interact with each other worked worked gangbusters for me. And also to include the social commentary and distinct perspectives that we get from those characters. I don't know how much the show agrees with them or the creators do, but they feel very distinct. So when you have Lillian going off on tirades about the state and stuff, I, it's it's wonderful to have that point of view you know, out there, like much of the way that I enjoyed, well, I don't agree politically with this. I really enjoyed the specificity of Ron Swanson's political beliefs on Parks and Rec um, to, as a counter to, to Leslie and just in general to get that point of view out there and represent it on TV in an entertaining way. We get the same thing here with Lillian. And I do think that, uh, and also somewhat with the other characters, but specifically with Lillian, I do think that is a wonderful uh, and, and specific element to the show that other shows aren't you know other shows aren't doing that yeah no absolutely um and uh they 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 tackle uh you know they tackle titus's race issues um just a bit in the one episode where he dresses up as as a werewolf and somehow becomes more trusted as a werewolf than as a black man in new york city and i actually did did enjoy that that part of it as well but no you're right there's a very specific voice both with um titus and with lillian uh that uh, you know that really helped shade their characters, but the show never never mocks them for having those kind of beliefs, those kind of ideas. Um, with uh, you know Titus's feelings about uh, being both black, being all black gay, and now old, uh, he doesn't know which what what people are stereotyping him for. Um, you know, it, while it was funny, it also felt very. Um, it, it didn't feel like the show was poking fun at Titus. It was um, that they they were they were sympathizing with him in, in that situation as well. Yeah, definitely agree. And um, I just, I'm so excited for season two. I'm really looking forward to it. Do you think this has a chance to crack your top 10 or top 20 this year? Uh, yeah, most definitely. I think so. Uh, definitely top 20. Um, if I sit down to think about it, quite possibly top 10 as well. Uh, will you support my petition to have Karen Gillan be cast as uh, Ellie Kemper's mother in season two? Karen Gillan is Ellie Kemper's mother in flashback? Well, no, I, I, you know, you know what though, I would like to see her in present day because uh, I feel like it would, it would somehow uh, retroactively make the ridiculousness of the Jackie Lynn storyline um, stand out as well. Because oh, look, they're all ridiculous. We have Karen Gillan as uh, Ellie Kemper's mother, even though they're clearly pretty much the same age. Well, I do like that idea. I do need more Karen Gillan on my television. I think she's hilarious and uh, in, in in the right role. I still love her so much on NTSFSDSUB uh, and uh, wish more people had seen her there. But um, yeah, that's, that's going to be stuck in my head now. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> See, it got stuck in my head right around when um, when we had Kimmy Schmidt's birthday party and, and Ellie Kemper walked out with like her hair straightened up in the, in that, you know, in the dress. And I thought, this looks a lot like Karen Gillan in her role on Selfie. And I couldn't get the thought of my head from now on. So I have passed that thought form <laughs> on to you. Thank you so much. Well, any final thoughts on this season or on what you'd hope for next season for Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Uh, I hope next season that they sort of expand on on this. Uh, you know, they've built a world in season one, and I hope sort of like uh, like on Thirty Rock or like on Parks on Rec, they they revisit they revisit these characters they've created. I hope that um, Cindy and Gretchen come back, Martin Short's uh, 
you know, Surgeon comes back. Um, definitely want to see more of Xanthippe. I hope, uh, you know, I hope she gets expanded on a bit more. Uh, I'd like to see now that they've developed a world in season one, I'd like to see them um, start to bring back these characters and make the show feel lived in in that sense that uh, it would be a delight to have Leloup just pop by the apartment and interact with Kimmy, even if it's just for two minutes uh, kind of thing. Uh, how about you? No, I absolutely agree. Um, I think they have the real potential to do that too. Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of new ideas, but uh, to to expand on the the good work they've already done absolutely makes sense to me. So I know we'll both be on board for season two of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, thank you so much, Dupine, for coming on to help me talk about it and the rest of the TV this week. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, well, you can find me uh, most often at Pop Optic. Uh, that's p o p o p t i q dot com, uh, as well as on Twitter at Dean Epe. And you can find me again uh, over at Pop Optic, where you can find this coming week. You'll be able to find my Doctor Who review. You can hear my thoughts about The Walking Dead, which, of course, we didn't talk about here because we have a Walking Dead podcast. Uh, so you can check out that, which should already be in your feed or will be soon. You can reach out on Twitter at The Televerse. You can email The Televerse uh, at gmail.com. You can find find us on Facebook to start a conversation there. Leave a rating or review in iTunes. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed uh we do really appreciate hearing from people there and uh of course you can always leave a comment at the website and uh give us your thoughts on on doctor who on unbreakable kimmy schmidt on everything else going on in tv right now and thank you once more to pine for coming on thank you for having me thank you everyone for listening and i'll be back next week with another episode of the televerse 